Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Cody Wittick is the co-founder and co-CEO at Kinship, a performance marketing agency that has visibility into 400 million in ad spend and has sourced 350,000 influencers for its brands. Prior to co-founding Kinship, Cody began his journey at Kalo, the brand that created the Silicon Wedding Ring. Throughout his time there, he built out a robust influencer program all through the foundation of seeding, which we'll talk about in this episode. This included contracting thousands of micro-influencers in a variety of industries to produce monthly user-generated content, organic posts, while also working with household names such as LeBron James, Jason Aldean, Mike Trout, Dale Hart Jr., and more. In this episode, we get into all things influencer marketing, tactics such as seeding influencers with product, scaling ad spend, and more. We also dive into what makes an influencer worthy of being paid for posts, how to assess the quality of an influencer in terms of follower counts and the like, and Cody's journey as a founder, his struggles, and his very personal story. It's been one crazy year. Some ups, some downs, and a ton of in-between. I hope wherever you're listening, that 2023 was what you hoped for. And as we turn the page to 2024, I wanna wish everyone a very happy holiday season filled with fun, friends, and family. And with that long-winded intro out of the way, here's my great chat with Cody Wittig. Let's start with some basic questions around this whole space for those that simply don't understand your world. So question number one, how do you define an influencer? An influencer, someone with a social media following, maybe 10 years ago, I used to say with a minimum follower account of X, but now there's all these nano influencers, which is very small micro influencers, depending on who you ask. That's a different definition and scope. But generally, someone with a social media audience, if I was going to have to give a number, probably above a thousand followers would be some kind of like a minimum threshold. Does it matter to the platform like TikTok or Facebook, Instagram? No. And more and more, honestly, like it's becoming less about follower count, which I think is a good thing because of And I think TikTok was kind of the hard charger here with like for you content on the platform. It wasn't based on who you're following. You were seeing content based on what you were consuming. And then the algorithm would show you more content of that. The consumer, someone listening to this has already experienced that to a great degree. It's like you watch one cooking video, then all of a sudden you're seeing like so many different chefs and all these chef reactions and all these different things show up. So 
And Instagram's kind of copied that model. So it's less who you follow, but still, if you are following folks like that and you are consuming content like that, you're going to start seeing more and more people that are posting similar content. Super long-winded answer. Someone who has a social media audience. Okay. Follow up to this. What makes an influencer a potential brand partner? That would tie into what the specific brand is mm-hmm. and who they're actually going after and what their product is. So if I'm a running shoe, certainly influencers that are in the running space that do marathons, you know, Ironmans, all these different things, I would want to potentially work with those folks because they have an audience over that space. When is an influencer worthy of getting paid versus getting some free product? I would say worthy based on proof of performance, proof of authentic love of the brand, like their genuine interests. I, I think it, a good parallel here is dating. Like you go on a first date, usually that's sending out the product. Okay, there's mutual interests as they show and like, man, I love this thing. They post about it or they just send you feedback. The relationship materializes based on mutual interests from both parties. And then there's usually a contract or money exchange eventually on that scope, whether it's the next time you work with them or the sixth time you work with them. So it's a sliding scale. How do you determine one's actual influence? I mean, there's certainly a fake follower analysis. You could see like extremely high or low combination of likes and comments compared to follower count. So like 30,000 followers, 30,000 likes on a photo. Pretty inflated, not realistic. Or the extreme opposite, you know, 30 likes, zero comments. Like there's extremely high or low compared to follower count. Just kind of like a basic analysis that you could do without any fancy tool. And then paired with that, what I'm speaking to really is like engagement rate, what you're seeing on a certain minimum threshold, probably depending on the tier of influencer, a 1% or above, but on a micro basis, like think sub 150,000 followers, you're looking at anywhere from three to 10% in terms of engagement. As far as authenticity, I would say like, usually why we recommend working with micro influencers, which is that threshold, our definition is sub 150, is because usually those folks have built their audience off of what they're talking about. They weren't on The Bachelor, they're not a famous athlete. You know, they didn't just get famous overnight, but they actually built their social following off of content that they were posting about food recipes, DIY design, a carpenter, whatever the thing is. And people just started to follow that content and they post about that. And then, so if you product that is relevant to their audience, more than likely they're going to post about it based on it or they're just going to love it because it's relevant to them. So those are some of the things I would suggest as far as assessing authenticity. Cody, how quickly are you seeing talent and influencer discovery shift away from YouTube and Instagram and move over to TikTok? How fast is this happening? I would say in 2022, it was skyrocketing. It's kind of leveled out. There was like a six to 12 month period, really for the majority of last year, that TikTok was like the hottest thing ever. It kind of cooled with some of the talk around it getting banned in the US. It kind of cooled with honestly just not seeing as crazy performance as some of the people were suggesting, like clickbaity case studies that were going around Twitter and LinkedIn and all that stuff. And in terms of like DTC brands, certainly the ad platform is significantly worse compared to Meta. So some of those things have kind of just led, but in terms of like creators, I think it's still a great platform to work with folks. What's the total amount of ad spend that Kidship is managing at this point? 
across all your clients? We have visibility into up to 400 million. What is the breakdown between ad spend on meta properties versus YouTube versus TikTok, et cetera? Well, we don't manage paid search, so we don't see any into YouTube or anything, oh, Google. But comparatively to TikTok, TikTok is 5 to 10% of the total spend. That's just because performance is not there compared to Meta. And on top of this, you've sourced over 350,000 influencers and have reduced cost of acquisition by an average of 23% across your client portfolio. So super impressive. Just before we started talking today, I was looking at those case studies on your website and there's some huge wins. I mean, let's just talk about a few of these. So you've got Native, you've got M&M Candies, you've got some others. Can you touch on, for one, how you increased M&M's direct sales by over 450%, which is a great number. Incredibly impressive. How did you guys do that? Yeah. So, I mean, it goes into our process of we seeded TikTok influencers product. They had personalized M&Ms. Obviously, I want to add this because I think a lot of agencies do a disservice to the clients that they're servicing, which is they tend to take more credit than they really should. And also they deflect blame than they should. M&Ms is a huge name. Um, when we're doing outreach to influencers, hey, do you want to get personalized M&Ms for your mother or father? Because it was around Mother's and Father's Day. You're going to get some attraction there. However, our strategy was very much a, a process and to take credit where credit is due. We outreach to people on TikTok and Instagram to influencers that they wanted to go after. And we saw 31 million impressions, not super into like the vanity metrics, but kind of just to name some and had some TikTok videos go viral of them giving the personalized M&Ms to their father or mother that were super emotional and all authentic. Like we didn't script this content. We didn't give them the, you know, talking points. It was all just based on they love the product. They posted about it authentically. And then we leverage that content within paid ads. DTC sales compared year over year, that was the 457% increase. But let's give credit where credit is due and, and talk about some of these other case studies that perhaps don't have the brand equity that M&M does. So for example, you guys scale Animal House Fitness from zero to 15 million. I assume that's revenue in 18 months. Correct. That's one. You guys increase metabolic meals ad account performance by 125%. That's two, Blendtopia, a smoothie brand that I've never heard of. You boost ad account performance by 105%. I mean, the list goes on here. So say what you will about brand equity. You guys have done an incredible job with producing real results for these companies. Well, all those case studies, the metrics are not based on vanity metrics on the influencer side. They're all having to do with in ad account metrics. So like reducing CPA, reducing CAC within that account, huge problem. Leveraging influencers to be your creative pipeline through seeding to unlock the creative bottleneck that many brands experience today, huge problem. So those two things that we're really solving for is I have high CAC, I can't get this down, but I want to scale ad spend and I'm trying to scale. I need creative to do that and I don't have the resources, I don't have the bandwidth to set that up because it's very hard to create one asset, let alone hundreds. So how do I do that? So our strategy is very unique in the sense of how we're actually going out and acquiring volume of content and variety of content. So one thing that Metal will tell you is that you need variety. So 
people see product on white background, best performing ad. I'm going to put it on black, blue, pink background. Different ad, right? No. Facebook and the ad auction sees that as the exact same ad. So you need variety, different placements, images, static, human content that's human forward. So UGC, influencer, whatever it is, models. You need product focus content, different placements, reels, stories. And that's one thing that seeding lends itself to. And then you need volume. People say or hear creative is the new targeting. It's true. Meta is a business itself. It's not 2017 where you can manipulate the machine as much as they, as you can in the back end, all the paid media gurus out there, like tinkering the buttons. They took that all away because they're a business and they saw that it was actually performing worse than if they just made it simple. So AKA advanced shopping plus campaigns within Meta, very simple to launch a campaign. Your aunt could get on there, create a campaign in five minutes. But what makes it even more important is creative. So you need volume. You need lots of it to see better performance. So we're solving those two things on the creative front. And then just on the profitability front, reducing CAC is we can get into like the weeds of that. I know I'm kind of getting nerdy on that account side of things, but we set targets based on there's something that you can do within Meta to actually make sure that you're only spending a certain amount of money to acquire customers. And those are called cost controls. So it's not anything like proprietary to Kinship. I think we just have a unique process and we're very different than other agencies. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think a lot of performance marketers have the opinion that the heyday of paid media on Meta has gone away. And there are a couple of sort of macro factors that are influencing a merchant or a brand's ability to be successful on these platforms, namely the increased CPC and CPM rates that we've seen the last five years or so. And two, this iOS 14 update that happened, I believe, just a few years ago now at this point. Do you believe that it is as easy to squeeze out a profit if you know what you're doing than it was five years ago? Or are these macro factors really an impairment on a brand's ability to be successful? I'll address both of them. The CPMs, they're always going to be rising. It's kind of just like housing prices. Says the guy that lives in Orange County to the (laughs) guy that lives in, in Toronto, two of the most expensive real estate markets on the planet. But go ahead. Yeah. Well, I'll just say like, it's never as cheap as it was 2018. It'll never be as cheap as it is now. Like we're going to look back on in five years and be like, man, I wish I would have spent more money in 2023. So people are saying the same thing about 2018 because of CPMs and all that stuff. So that's just going to continue to rise. Then on iOS front, Facebook has come back to on a one day click basis being just as trustworthy as pre iOS days genuinely believe that. And also there's been analysis like of how Meta has solved for the signal loss. Like immediately post iOS 14, there was significant data loss, but not anymore. There's been analysis by even attribution tools where they've compared a one day click Meta to Triple Whale or North Beam. And it's like 99.9 or seven or 6% the same. So 
we tend to like at best these tools are redundant and at worst they're creating confusion on how to actually optimize to create new customer revenue. There's been correlation reports to compare the two. Yeah, for a period, a year or two, there's definitely like some significant loss, but it has returned and is definitely a great place to put your dollar. Prior to starting Kinship, you were at Kalo, the brand that created the silicone wedding ring for the active lifestyle. You grow the company's influencer roster from the ground up to north of 500 people. You grab names and or influencers like LeBron James, Mike Trout, and others. What's the secret to securing some of these big names? Unique product, keeping the main thing the main thing, which is the relationship. I think people get their eyes are too big. They miss the forest for the trees and they start asking for the world because this particular influencer bought our product or DM'd us inquiring about the product or things of that nature. And so, yeah, I think when you keep the relationship capital as like the long-term compounding value that you can build a brand on for a really long time as the main thing and you can get outside of your scope of what if this person posted about us, what would that do for my business? try to think a longer term than that one day of sales potentially could. So those were significant learnings. My days at Kalo were all about, wow, this product costs two cents, costs $25, and we're getting these insane athletes to be super interested in it. And I saw just the power of just being able to give and build on generosity and how that built relationships and our biggest deals with biggest celebrity talent were all started that with that way. Um, and we got cheaper deals too. Like our, de- our deal with Dale Earnhardt Jr. was probably cut in half just because I had been seeding a product for a year before hmm. we actually negotiated a contract and he became like a flag bearer face of the brand. Say more about that idea of seeding the product for a year or so. If you were to start, you know, net new product today and begin to seed and grow before you were to approach, you know, Dale Earnhardt Jr. equivalent, what mm-hmm. would that path to influencer approach look like? As far as like on a numbers basis, I would just create a, not everybody has incredibly low cogs like Kalo did, totally realize that, but the principle remains. So whatever your cost of goods are, 25 bucks, 50 bucks, what budget are you comfortable with? So if it's 50 bucks and you're comfortable with 500, you can send out 10 a month. In order to send out 10 a month, I need to reach out to 50. A month because my minimum expectation is 20% people are going to take my offer and be interested in my new brand that they've never heard of. If it's better than that, great. So that's what how I would think about it. If I was my own product, I realized like this is cost out the door, inventory that you've paid for, designed, but you're trusting the process of you need to leverage word of mouth in some form or fashion. And that can come from people purchasing your product or you can come from sending out your product to relevant people. And there's only so many ways that you can track it. You try to do it the best you can. There's been so many brand and celebrity collaborations over the past few years. I've completely lost track. I just I just noted a few. Like Fab Fit Fun did something with Khloe Kardashian and Kristen Cavallari. New School Snacks is sort of backed by Tim Tebow or, or seemingly backed by Tim Tebow. Harry's did something with Ashley Graham a few years ago safely with the Kardashians. Again, Next Century Sports. I mean, the list goes on. First of all, do you follow any of these use cases? Do you care? And if so, what have we all learned about what works, what doesn't, and why? Yeah, there's like two things to what you just asked. One is like the celebrity 
owned and operated brands. Jessica Alba and Honest Company, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that, and then there's also just like, I'm going to have a celebrity endorse my brand, which is some of the ones that you exemplified. What have we learned? It is not the surefire way for me to just get a quick buck. There's certainly more fails than successes, although it can make sense and it can be a huge driver of credibility. So I think of like Hexclad and Gordon Ramsay, you have like the Michael Jordan of cooking as the face of your brand. Makes perfect sense, but they did that five years in, you know, like they've earned the right. They were a nine figure brand at that point. They only gave up equity. We actually, I actually had Jason Panzer, the president on our podcast to talk about that deal. So they didn't pay upfront cash. There's definitely equity involved. And I think for many brands, probably 99% of the brands, you shouldn't even be thinking about a celebrity endorsement or giving up equity. Like I would just be very, very cautious. I think there should be an approach and proof of concept to work your way up until that, like that capstone. I would be very, very cautious around looking at a celebrity to endorse my brand just because of the cash basis, the noise, the agents. Um, most people are just head over heels and don't know what they're doing, negotiating with talent or agents like that. And you can waste a lot of time and money. Since you've been in this game for so long, does Kinship think about executing its own product and scaling its own product internally? Uh, do you have a portfolio of products that you have seeded that you manage and grow internally? Or are you strictly sort of third-party agency at this point? Third-party. We have entertained that, starting our own brands and kind of leveraging our process. But for right now, that is not in the cards for us. What about investing in said brands that need more horsepower from a cash flow perspective and taking equity on the other side? We have done that a couple times. Very, very particular. We've certainly been approached by that thousands of times to take a haircut on like instead of retainers. Paying us, we offer, yeah. yeah, exactly. So to date in five years, we've done two of what you just asked versus like the thousands of times that we've been offered that to for them to save some cash. And usually it's just been on proof of concept or they have an incredible network that it's going to lead to other business. So there, there's obviously a skin in the game for us and interest on our end. On top of the retainer that they pay you, do you also take a percent of the media spend? Yes, we do. So in a sense, are you incentivized to spend more of your client's money or do you ever get that as an objection? We do. Yeah. One of the things that I would say is work scales as size scales, like a flat rate with no basis for growth also doesn't account for any sort of scope increase for scaling brands. And many e-com brands are obsessed with scaling, right? Work scales as size scales, like the more you spend, the more creative you need, especially for our process. So like we're launching 150, 250, 500 assets in a month. That is the primary way that we're scaling ad accounts, which also increases our costs and bandwidth. We can only take on so many clients. And we don't like lock people into long-term contracts. So both us and them are bearing equal risk, in my opinion, in trying a new agency. And then we also take risk by not taking a long-term client and investing in someone that could probably bounce in 90 days. What's the right client archetype? Like, obviously, this isn't a model that fits every e-com startup. Like, at mm -hmm. what point in a business's life cycle should they begin to explore this sort of paid ad arrangement? with Kinship or another partner, for example? I would say for the sub 
one million dollar brands for sure doesn't make sense even sub five i would try to learn as much like and this is coming from an agency that we work with some sub five brands i would try to learn facebook ads myself i would try to know the ins and outs of growth channels before i off board this to an agency but a lot of times at a certain point like you the founder need to focus on other things about growing product development product roadmap the things that you're best skilled at and many times the founder is not the best person to be managing the paid media or the ad account on a day-to-day basis. It's just in the margins, and I think it's a, a distraction. I'd rather give it to an agency or even a head of growth or a dedicated media buyer at that point. Just on the topic of when is the right point in the life cycle to partner with an agency, yeah. just to take a step back and look at the macro environment for a moment. So. The past few years has been an interesting time period for e-com, certainly D2C in general, pandemic, post-pandemic, rise in e-com, <laughs> significant drop in e-com. As an agency partner, seeing a lot of inbound demand or lack of inbound demand, what are you seeing right now heading into 2024? Probably the most macro topic over the past, let's just say 90 days, has been how do I unlock more spend? How do I get more spend out? while still staying relative like because usually the more you spend the higher the cpas rise that's usually a general analysis we've seen the opposite from a macro across the board like we can unlock more spend and keep cpas the same or reduce that goes into our process but i would say the appetite definitely is very different compared to end of year this year versus last year Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Are there any other key topics around paid media that we haven't touched on before I ask you some other stuff? You did mention touching on whitelisting. People love to hear about that, apparently. Whitelisting, uh, it, again, it's another tool in the tool belt. I don't have like a ton of thoughts on it. We've spent millions with whitelisting. It's a 50-50 coin flip. Depends on the creative. It's not like the most crazy answer. Or if you have a massive like The Rock or... Jessica Alba and HelloFresh, like those things can make a difference, a slight delta. But generally, whitelisting is not worth it unless you have proof of concept and you can keep it moving forward. But how do you explain whitelisting to a to a layperson? The ad is being served through that influencer's handle versus coming from the brand. So instead of it coming from Nike, it's coming from The Rock. So when you're seeing that ad, it looks like it's coming from them as opposed to an ad. So to the end consumer, in theory, it looks more authentic or not as an ad. But we've done heat chart analysis, like 60% of the time, all where eyes go and where like buttons are paused, it's all on the creative itself. It's not on the headline or the ad copy. Like that's where eyeballs go. Hence why creative is the most important thing when it comes to ads. Yeah, it's interesting this cross between this idea of whitelisting and authenticity. I don't know if you saw that piece of data that came out from Google saying that authentic was the word of the year or something like that. Really? I don't know. I did not see that. I I think it's 
Yeah, this this is all complete bullshit in my opinion. But uh, it, it did go viral. A bunch of people were posting about it, saying that authentic is the word of the year. And then I was, you know, myself and others were questioning whether or not these posts were authentic. Um, in any case, there good. you go. That's good. <laughs> people seem to, to really want to hone in on this idea of authenticity these yeah. days in a world that is so noisy on social, certainly. Very true. I did want to ask you about something more personal that you posted about today. You say, 13 years ago today, I attempted suicide. If you're reading this, there's a reason you have breath in your lungs. You continue, and then you say you never know what someone is going through. End quote. So first of all, super courageous for you to put this out there. Thank you for doing that. What was going on 13 years ago? Man, I appreciate you asking. Not many would ask that, so appreciate you having that vulnerability to even have this on the pod. 13 years ago, I was a freshman in college and just lonely and not knowing who I was or my identity. And I think... I just got spiraled. Uh, first semester of freshman year, I didn't even go that far away. I was in San Diego compared to Orange County. So it wasn't like across the country for college or a lot of people have way more of feeling homesick. But that was certainly part of it. On the rocks with my girlfriend at the time, a lot of what I thought my college experience would look like, I was playing JUCO basketball. I thought I was going to get a full ride. It didn't work out. That was kind of like my last option. So just a lot of things that I was being, for lack of a better word, attacked with. It's certainly, you know, for people, sometimes people's perception of people that are experiencing suicidal thoughts or attempted suicide is like, oh, I can never do that. I can never picture myself going down that route. It's selfish. How could you ever actually attempt that? The problem is, is like, it's a very real solution and it feels like the only option when you actually are in that dark place comparatively to like, you don't have actually the mental aptitude or insight to be like, wait a minute. And like, think outside of your own sphere. Like for anybody that sees stats or pays attention to this, like I do, but maybe it's just because I've experienced it. It's only getting younger and younger people experiencing this, like kids in middle school, social media has made it worse. So it's a huge, huge issue. And so a lot of my tweet or post yesterday on LinkedIn as well was just, you don't know what people are going through and maybe send out a text to someone that you really appreciate because you, you never know how long it'll, it'll go and that people are seen like, hey, I see you. I appreciate you. Like I notice you. And I think that's a lot of the problem that People, when they're stuck in that isolation, they don't feel like they're seen or loved or known. And the reality is they are. They just need to be reminded. Thank you for sharing that. Obviously, you change course at some point, just on a very sort of micro by the hour moment. Like, did, did somebody reach out to you? Did you reach out to somebody else? How did you reverse course? Yeah, uh, I don't know how to talk about this without talking about my faith, which I'm a follower of Jesus. Certainly, I was not at that point. I would say there's definitely something supernatural that occurred. There's a, a supernatural occurrence that I can't explain it, but there's something supernatural about it that at first time I've ever experienced like the actual presence of God. I would like to say from that moment on, I was completely different, like gave up drugs, gave up sexual relations with other women, like gave up all these things that I were deemed quote unquote sinful. But it, in reality, I actually didn't. But what it did do was it incredibly humbled me because I was so embarrassed. Like what happened, you know, it was a very public scene at a college campus. I had to go to the 
the psychiatrist, they get cleared to continue to live in the dorms. And so what it humbled me and made me realize like there's something bigger. I remember like probably three or four months later going back to a college party and I was drinking. And you know those scenes in the movie where everything kind of goes silent and like that person is like just standing in the midst of a crowd. That's what kind of happened in that moment. I was like at a frat party and I was like, I'm either going to do harder drugs or I'm just done with all this because like there's something like this isn't fulfilling me. There's got to be something deeper. And that's how I transitioned into like, I grew up in the Christian faith, but it was never really like my own. I never really explored it for myself of like, is this true? Is this something that I really want to take on? So that's what kind of set me up for the journey from there. For those that may feel touched by the story, uncertain of a path forward, you know, quote unquote, lonely as, as you say you were, what would you suggest they do in this moment as a next step? Reach out to me. I would love to talk or just, well, I'll just say that the door is open to DM me and I would love to chat with you. And that's not a uh, invitation for me to proselytize you or <laughs> tell you you need Jesus if that's a fear, but just someone to listen. I think someone to just see them and love them where they're at. I would love that opportunity. And if it's not me, think of the most trusted person that you know is like the best listener that's just going to sit there and listen. If that is not an option, there's also therapy options that are virtual, like Talkspace, a company is something that I've actually um, worked with in the past when I've promoted my story. Um, on the 10 year anniversary, I worked with Talkspace to kind of communicate their platform and how you can get therapy pretty quickly online. So definitely a big fan of them. Those would be three suggestions. And also not to shame yourself for feeling these things, because I think most people probably have thought some things like that you are experiencing at a certain time in their life when they're going through a hard time. Because if you haven't gone through hard times, you're bound to at some point in your life. And my suicide story was not the only hard thing that I've gone through in my life. And yeah, you're not alone. You, you don't have to shame yourself for, for thinking those things. I don't want you to sit in it, but it's not bad that you've thought those thoughts. Thank you again. Cody Wittick, thanks for coming on today. Kinship.co. That's K-Y-N-S-H-I-P dot C-O for more on what Cody is building in Kinship. Where else can people follow you, Cody, or connect with you, as you just mentioned? Twitter and LinkedIn are my most active platforms. So Twitter, it's at Cody underscore Wittick. And then LinkedIn, I think it's just no underscore. So at Cody Wittick. Happy to chat. Thanks, man. Thanks for coming on today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was fun. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Entrepreneurs Exposed is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at Scriberbase.com. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. It helps our audience find us. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash E2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, 
and live in a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab, an electric cast production. See you there. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Electric acid.